millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman culture podcast with me, Tom Gatti, culture editor of The New Statesman. And me, Kate Mossman, arts editor of The New Statesman. We have one bar of battery on our recorder, so we're hoping we can get through this. We're on an efficiency drive, so uh, forgive us if, if we speak overly rapidly. Um, what are we going to talk about today, Kate? We're going to talk about The Post, the new Spielberg film. We're going to talk about the song credit scandal involving Lana Del Rey and Radiohead. And we will have the umpteenth of our non-anniversaries, the non-important cultural event that happened a few years ago this month. Excellent. Onwards. So, Kate, we were at the European premiere of The Post last night in London's Leicester Square, weren't we? Well, they were all there. The, the the famous people were there. Spielberg was there. Streep, Tom Hanks. I I kind of I was sitting very far back, and I didn't think it was really them. I thought maybe they were just like agency Puppets. lookalikes. <laughs> but also, my question: Do they sit and watch the entire film? I think so. Yes, they really do. I think convention dictates they sit and watch the whole film. Yeah, that's so surreal. So Spielberg will be thinking like, "Oh, I'm really pleased about that zoom," and Meryl will be going, "Well, that was a really effective." Mm, sound that I did, and they're congratulating themselves, and then they go off and get a drink off. I just found it weird that they're in. This, I was almost embarrassed that they were watching their own product. You know. Yeah, I know what you mean. It for anything that you've sort of created or involved in, the idea of having to watch it back or listen to it back, let alone do that repeatedly. Yeah, because uh, you're only going to be critical, just, aren't you? It's just horrifying. Well, maybe they're maybe they are maybe they're extremely pleased with themselves. <laughs> um, they did feel quite pleased with themselves. They did. Yeah. <laughs> Hanks particularly has this very, I mean, if you see him on like chat shows or anything, he just has this amazing kind of homely, mm. sort of like he's 100% movie star, but he's also got this homely... Fireside, kind yeah, of timeless. Touch, yeah. And he always gets at least two genuine gags mm. in when, whatever he's doing. Um, they made this in 10 months, didn't they? This is the one of the most interesting things about this, this yeah. film is that they, they got the script... 10, 10 months ago and Spielberg thought I've got to get this out in the time of post-truth and the denigration of, of news reporting across the world and it's it's quite an achievement to have done it in such a short space of time. When this script came along Spielberg was working on Ready Player One which is this big budget video games fantasy science fiction mashup film that's that's coming out a little later this year and what he did was while all the CGI post-production stuff was happening on Ready Player One he, they just made this film very, very quickly. He did a sort of similar sort of thing, although it wasn't such a quick timescale with Schindler's List and Jurassic Park while Jurassic Park was being, while all the dinosaurs were being sort of 
worked up. He kind of went away. <laughs> well, he did filmed Schindler's List film. quickly. No, he didn't do it quickly, but he did do it in that in that period. He when, just kept uh, one simmering on the oven. Did, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, had, <clears throat> he had his plates spinning. I mean, there is something about these these movies about the the press, um, which I mean, they're often brilliantly done, like Spotlight. They get Oscars, but they they sort of feel almost like brilliant TV movies on a Sunday afternoon, and that, that is something to do with the fact that they are quite. It's quite a claustrophobic setting, isn't it? When you when you're in the newsroom, when you're in a select group of characters with their their collars open and their cigarettes and standing at their desks with their phones and stuff, there is something quite sort of limited about it in a way. So in yes. a way, maybe it was easier to make a film like this in ten months than it would be one of his big ones. Yeah, and they do. It, it does make for good. TV drama, like I don't know if you saw the newsroom, the Aaron Sorkin HBO series. It's the, it's a similar sort of thing. You're right. It's a concentrated setting. This is a very straight down the line movie, even even for Spielberg, who favours that kind of storytelling. I liked Anthony Lane's line in his New Yorker review where he said, Spielberg remains a sworn foe of narrative confusion. <laughs> <laughs> And it, and it does have this music all the way up, you know, all the way through, building up behind, and then, you know, the spinning newspaper headlines coming off the presses and everything. It's all kind of yeah. goes in the direction you expect it to. It, it's another John Williams collaboration on the score. And there are very few moments of, of silence in this film. It really, <laughs> it, it, the tension is sort of kept going throughout. If you haven't read much about this movie yet, it's called The Post, as in The Washington Post. It opens in 1966. Uh, we get a brief scene of um, combat in in Vietnam, which actually I thought was kind of amazingly uh, effective mm. uh, as an, just a really economical way of showing the total lack of progress and pointlessness of the conflict in that it, you, you see all the soldiers gearing up, they go out into the jungle on the mission, rapid, rapid fire, half of them come home in body bags. And that's kind of, in a way, that's all Spielberg needs to do to set up mm. set up the background to this. 1966, the war had been going on for quite a long time, but American combat troops had been on the ground for about a year. Then we skip forward to 1971, when this report, which became known as the Pentagon Papers, was leaked to the New York Times. And this is a big study designed for academic posterity about the whole conflict and the background to the conflict, but hugely revealing on what the various administrations goes through Eisenhower, JFK, Lyndon B. Johnson, up through to Nixon, who's the president at the time, what the various administrations thought of the war and hugely damaging things in that they knew they weren't making progress, they knew they weren't going to win it. 70% of boys being sent there just to save face for America rather than to actually... Be able to achieve anything. Absolutely, so, yeah. the, the, the kind of the driving force became just to avoid humiliation, basically. So it was obviously a huge scandal, and the film picks up. The film doesn't centre on the New York Times, and it's quite funny how annoyed people from the New York Times are about this movie. <laughs> They're really pissed <laughs> off because the New York Times launched the first leak and then was shut down by the Nixon administration. Then the Washington Post got their hands on the papers and they published it, which then triggered this landmark lawsuit and eventually the Supreme Court ruled in their favour and, and everyone was allowed to publish. So that's the background, but the human drama of the film focuses on Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Meryl Streep plays Kay Graham, who is the owner of the Washington Post. It's a, it's a family paper. It was owned by her father, who handed it down to their husband in a kind of very patriarchal lineage way. Her husband died and she got ownership of the paper and she's trying to uh, navigate her way through this crisis. And then there's Tom Hanks, 
who plays Ben Bradley, who is the uh, sort of swashbuckling editor of the Washington Post. And it's partly about their relationship. That's the kind of narrative thread that goes mm. through the film, isn't it? And Meryl Streep's characters from her, the transition from her, you know, having to be briefed on everything she's going to say, because as a woman who's inherited the the newspaper, which it was never in, in line to take it on in the first place, uh, doesn't necessarily trust in her her opinions and her judgments and everything like that too. In the end, basically being publish and be damned, wearing this amazing nighty, and then just you know saying like at ten to midnight, let's publish all this stuff, and I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> a really proper, really good sort of character development. I was wondering if we are nostalgic for this kind of journalism because we're nostalgic for a time of you know what we perceive as journalistic integrity or whether we're sort of missing the apparatus of how all this stuff was put together now that we live in a digital world as well. There's just something amazing looking at printing presses and printing blocks and green eye shades. And I mean, I love the fact that they get this 4,000 word document and you don't really see how they turn it into an article. There's this amazing scene where they're sitting around in the editor's house kind of pouring over these thousands and thousands of pages and they've got literally eight hours until they're supposed to go to press. And it's just, you think sort of dramatically as well, yes, how can you show the writing of an article on screen? And that's probably the most exciting way you can do it. What this film does brilliantly is sort of make admin dramatic. And I, <laughs> I think there's there's like a continuing, I think this should be an occasional series because for me, it's like of a piece with the dramatic mouse click in McMafia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when the guy um, who originally sort of nicked the papers to leak them and towards the beginning of the film takes them, the photocopier is this sort of looming, gleaming, otherworldly presence, this giant kind of machine in the room. And they make photocopying feel exciting. Yeah. And similarly, when you're totally right, when they're putting together pieces, there's piles of papers everywhere, chaos in the room. And then... Obviously, this is more, this is easier to make dramatic and exciting because it is a kind of really impressive process. But when they show the actual printing process towards the end, I think it's very faithfully rendered. You know, you've got the copy, it's taken to the, it, it's typed up, it's taken to the sub editor. And I think, um, you know, for both of us working in, uh, in magazines and newspapers, sub editors are the great unsung heroes mm. of the whole process. And he doesn't get, the, the sub in the post doesn't get a, a a big role, but he gets a very crucial one. It's handed to him and he's like, you got half an hour. And he does what all subs do, which is immediately cross out the first sentence. <laughs> but then you see that you see all the, the, the typesetting, the real metal type slotting in and that brilliant kind of moment where um, Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul in, in Breaking Bad, um, he's um, one of the kind of senior journalists on the paper. He's sitting there in a near deserted newsroom and his pen pot just starts rumbling. And that's the press's underneath the paper ro rolling into action um, is there is something um we were discussing last night there's something slightly cheesy about it but it works you know the spielberg seems to love these um these kind of zooms these very fast zooms on you and we were talking you know maybe this is something that he first brought in in jaws but he's kind of using it here as well you know you'll have somebody looking through a um a sort of a forbidden government document and the camera will just zoom right down to where it says private mm. or someone running along a corridor and you know the camera will zoom into their face as they reach the door that they're, they're going towards yeah partly that is a little bit cheesy you're right but it also is part of the joy of a Spielberg film is you're in a totally safe pair of hands so you know everything is kind of expertly framed every moment is really clearly defined and he use he does you know he it's very well cast and he uses his his actors very effectively and as you said earlier Streep 
particularly Streep. I mean, Hanks's character is, he does it very well, but he's kind of, he's not a particularly profound character. He is, he is the kind of gung-ho editor type uh, with his feet planted up on the desk. Um, Married to his job, understanding artistic yeah, wife exactly, at home. Yeah, there's, there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing rule-breaking there. But Streep is, you know, they, admittedly Spielberg makes uh, quite a lot, gets quite a lot of mileage out of this, but you you see her repeatedly enter these rooms full of these suited, often bow-tied men. So she is a she's a powerful woman in a entirely male world and trying to navigate her way through that. To the, and constantly she has these annoying men at her elbow guiding her, advising her at one point during a big board meeting. And remember, she's the owner of the company. She steps up to speak and one of her colleagues just sort of gently applies pressure on her shoulder and, and sits <laughs> her down again. Uh, and so... It's like she learns to lean in. Yeah, the she does. The she totally yeah. does. And then, as you say, there's that great moment where she finally realises that... Um, she finally comes to terms with the fact that it is, it is her paper. It's not her father's paper. It's not her husband's paper. She has agency. She can make the decision. And of course, she makes the historically correct decision um which then is what en- enables the movie to speak so urgently to the present day and about you know holding truth to power is that the right word <laughs> holding power to truth holding the powerful to account we speak for the governed not the governors holding you know, meryl to account Herring holding meryl to account <laughs> yeah and before she makes that decision of course she has that 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 great moment when she's finally um sort of come into the the role where she says to this uh, the secretary of defense I'm not asking for your permission to do this. I'm asking mm. for your advice, you know, mm. so she's renegotiated that, mm. that balance. I think this will be watched with, with interest everywhere, especially in the States, um, as, as Spotlight was. And it was, this script was rewritten by the guy who co-wrote Spotlight. So it's definitely in that kind of, uh, in that tradition. And it ends very neatly, doesn't it, with um, the real voice recordings of of, of Nixon. Um, I don't want any Washington Post journalist in here ever again. Yeah. Don't talk to my wife because she'll let them in. I will fire you. <laughs> what, a, what a mean man, I thought. <laughs> what an absolute meanie. And so, yeah, it's the, the, the break-in that then goes on to... Um, form the centre of the Watergate scandal is, is is how they close the movie and there's the sequel there there could be a sequel I suppose yeah it's strange to think it's the first Street Hank Spielberg seems like such an obvious trio and yet it's the first thing they've done together last night I was thinking that you know when you get these disaster movies that have you know big terrorist attacks or something like that and they always have sort of fictional movies in them you know we might be at the cinema going to see the new film by Spielberg featuring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and called The Post it's such a generic title I thought this can't be real this is some kind of setup but it was it is real it's in cinemas on January the 19th 19th, next Friday I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is 
absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah. And under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week it emerged that Radiohead are suing, or if not suing, at least in long-running discussions with Lana Del Rey because they believe that her single, is it a single? I don't know. Her song, Get Free, rips off Creep. And Lana Del Rey tweeted about this, and, and it's it's got a lot of traction. Radiohead's label at the time, Warner Chapel, have just released a statement saying that they haven't actually issued a lawsuit, mm. but they are they are in, in discussions with her. Are they going to try to get a co-credit or something? Because that seems to be the way these things work nowadays. Well, I don't know exactly how it works, but they want they want some cut of the of the publishing. I don't know whether that means that they then get written written in as co-writers. I think um, the the big irony in this is that Radiohead were hauled up by the writers of the Hollies song "The Air That I Breathe," the nineteen seventy four Hollies song. When they released Creep, this writing duo Mike Hazelwood and Albert Hammond saying that Creep was was mimicking the air that I breathe, and um, Radiohead ended up adding Hazelwood and Hammond to the so that so the songwriting credits for Creep now. I really now cannot hear York Hazelwood Hammond. I cannot hear Creep in the air that I breathe. This this the <laughs> item on this podcast is is slightly hampered by by our inability to play any of these songs to you. We did consider humming or singing them, but I think that's that's a bad road to go down. Um, but yeah, it's all it's all these three songs. If you do listen to them in succession, you will hear the chord progression in the verse is similar. So I just think it's it, I just think despite any similarities, Radiohead just come out of this looking really bad. Mm. Um, it's a grubby business. It is isn't a grubby it, all business. This. Yeah, I, I was suspicious about the uh, Taylor Swift song "Look What You Made Me Do." So, so you know, this being kind of billed as her being inspired by "Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy." You think, no, she wasn't inspired by it. Some lawyer at the eleventh hour got in and said, "Hang on, your song goes." look what you made me do. And right said Fred goes, I'm too sexy for my shirt. And she probably said, well, that's nothing like each other. And they said, well, you're going to have to put a co-credit on. So this was part of the press surrounding this this song. Wasn't this interesting that she'd been inspired by right said Fred? I mean, it's such a litigious world. There, there are armies and armies of people just working to find these connections between songs. And they're, you know, 
going back to the the 50s you had this amazing kind of this almost um copyright free era at the beginning of rock and roll where you would get people creating answer songs for each other using mm. exactly the same tune like um joe tex wrote, wrote a song called pneumonia that was the same tune and the same lyrical kind of content as fever and mm. he released it a year <laughs> later he, he claimed that he'd actually written fever but he'd sold the rights to pay his rent <laughs> so it was his second chance so he said it was his own song in the first yeah. place i mean you there are only eight notes in a scale and there yeah. are all sorts of similarities between songs that people don't seem to pick up on like if you listen to express yourself by madonna alongside born this way by lady gaga it's the mm. same tune mm. i don't know what i don't know whether she got into any trouble for that mm. but you know there's I rich history of this the taylor swift example is 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 really interesting because i think they are people are running scared particularly since this 2013 case with blurred lines this robin thick farrell williams song that marvin Gaye's estate or whatever uh, said was too close to his song got to give it up end up being a 5.3 million dollar settlement and if you listen to those two that that was a kind of interesting case because there's no, as with the Taylor Swift thing, there's no chord progression, there's no melody. It's it's about rhythm mm. and feel. It is sort of a Marvin Gaye pastiche, mm. but it's not it's not a straight copy. Mm. So I think people are really worried about this. And and a couple of years later, there was a big sort of letter signed by 212 um, musicians, um, including like Weezer, Hall & Oates, Danger Mouse, all these people. Um, they filed this kind of legal letter in in support of overturning this this ruling because they just said it's bad. Look, it's bad for the creative yeah. the creative ecosystem. But it does go back. Um, I guess the fifties was a slightly more lawless time. But um, once you get into the sixties and seventies, I guess when people realise how much money there is to made, you get you get these similarly high profile cases like um, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, which was and does actually. This is a case where I think it clearly sounds exactly the same to He's So Fine by the girl group, The Chiffons. But then interestingly, you know, Paul Weller can do Start in the Jam, which is Taxman, mm, which is mm. George Harrison's bass line. And it just gets through I, the net. I, I always assumed he'd like asked permission to do that, but I looked it up and apparently no, he just, he just risked it. And George Harrison, either in a kind of nice, generous way, thought, well, I've been screwed over by this but I don't want to screw other people over so he just let him let him run with it or, or, they were mates. or he just liked the song or they yeah. were mates I, don't I know. think it's like a fairly good part of Ray Davis's income collecting these kind of taxes on, right. on, on <laughs> plagiarism he I think he the Kinks sued um, the Doors for Hello, I Love You, which sounds very, very similar to All Day and All Did the they? Oh, And that's also, um, uh, Green Day had some track that literally used the bass from from Picture Book, the bass riff. So, you know, it is kind of, it's a very lucrative business if, you, if you're into sitting there and pouring over these things and seeing where, where all the similarities are. But a lot of it will be subconscious mm. as well. There's a million and one ways, and you know, sometimes I've had dreams where I've written entire songs and I've woken up and it's, it, you know, it's yesterday or something <laughs> like that. What if, you, what if you're a musician and it just kind of came into your brain in some sort of creative bubble and you didn't realise and you put it out and you thought, oh, shit, it's exactly the same as, you know, Neil Sedaka. 
Yeah, at least if you've sort of come up with a, a winning phrase, you can kind of Google it just to check that no one else has no one else has done it. But you can't you can't do that with music. Um, I just want to tell you a couple of uh, other really good answer song titles okay, that, go for I, it. Yeah. that I read about. So speaking of Sadaka, um, he released Oh Carol. Oh yes, yeah. And um, Carol King released a song called O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. And we also have uh, Roger Miller's famous King of the Road. Jody Miller <laughs> released a song called. Queen of the House, which is very uh, progressive there. And then, of course, there was Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town by Johnny Darrell. Yeah. Geraldine Stevens released Billy, I've Got to Go to Town. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, those were probably, you know, probably didn't sound anything like the originals. But I think that 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 is a that is a tradition that continues because um, looking at Blurred Lines, which the other controversial aspect of Blurred Lines was this idea that it was somehow contributing to rape culture and the idea of you know consent and all this so um i'm i'm pretty sure people did kind of response videos and parody videos of uh defined lines and, and like that, <laughs> hard, lines. hard lines but what yeah. a grubby song that it's got two massive scandals attached yeah, to it I know. Gosh, horrible yeah. put it in the vault yeah lock it away tom's mum listens to the podcast and she pointed out last week that we keep getting our maths wrong so when we say something's 27 years ago it's actually often 24 something uh, we didn't realize that we were we were that far out um we're going to talk about mr bean for our anniversary which was 1990 so, so we mainly picked this so that the maths are e- easier easier and transparent it's an even number it's now 2018 so is that is that 28 years or is it 18 years <laughs> it's 18 years isn't it no. What is it? 28. 20, is it 28 years? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 28 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Mr. Bean hit the screen. Mr. Bean, I've always thought, was inspired by... Um, Rowan Atkinson likes to go and stay in a hotel called Morston Hall, near where I grew up in North Norfolk. And there's a famous seal trip that leaves from Morston Harbour called Mr. Bean's Seal Trips. Mm. And it's the only instance of the, uh, the name that I know. So hopefully that's the etymology. It may well be. Wikipedia thinks that they tried out other vegetable influence names such as Mr. Cauliflower. Oh, beforehand. God. <laughs> so I guess that was, a, uh, that was a lucky miss. But this is something that kind of started as quite a purist endeavor kind of influenced by Jacques Tati French mime you know he does, does he he occasionally mumbles a word or two I think but otherwise he it's like completely like, mm, silent some Meryl yeah. Streep noises every now yeah. and again yeah. um but it just became huge didn't it? Mm, it for me it's a it was a kind of um a sad moment because I'd followed Rowan Atkinson from a very young child and I he mm. was my first crush so the Elizabethan <laughs> Blackadder Black with the rough <laughs> yeah. and the tight yeah. he was such a bastard yeah. and I just thought it was the sexiest thing in the world when I was six years old you know and then suddenly I realized that actually most of the kids at school thought of Rowan Atkinson as this this moron yeah Mr Bean and for me um, the interest kind of waned after that point I've never sat through an entire episode I can't bear it it really took on a life of its own and I think um became a huge international success for, for kind of for obvious reasons, really. And I think it's what, you know, the Rowan Atkinson of Blackadder and not the nine o'clock news, the kind of sexy, edgy one has, I think Mr. Bean has slowly turned him into uh, the Black the Rowan Atkinson of uh, Johnny English and these slightly kind of tawdry, like multi-billion dollar grossing, but kind of slightly crap films. Yeah. And Mr. Bean continues. There's a, uh, 
there have been three films, um, books, video games. There is a, um, he appeared as Mr. Bean in a Chinese film last year. Um, and there's a new Johnny English film next year. So mm. he's, he's not dead. It's not gone. So, you know, we're celebrating the continued life of Mr. Bean, but we're not recommending it. <laughs> we're not recommending his continued life. We're, re- we're, re- <laughs> we're, re- we're recommending euthanasia for Mr. Bean. Not for Ronak. <laughs> not for Ronak. No, he can, he can remain. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Back Half. We've been Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman. We were recorded and produced by Caroline Crampton. Do get in touch, suggest on anniversaries, rate us on the iTunes store. And who's going to play us out this week? We've got a particularly groovy tune this week. It's called Is it God's... the score to uh, The Post? <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, it's, um, it's called Godspeed and it's by Pistol Jazz. Hooray. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.